Last month, WMQ&A sent Matt Lazowitz to Fan Expo Philly. This is what he came back with. Please excuse ambient crowd noise. WMQA. And we are here on Saturday at Fan Expo Philly, and I'm here with artist Margaret Sauvage. Welcome right. to the show. Thank you for inviting me to the podcast. So we're here to talk about what you're working on right now, and you just did the art on the Power Girl special that dropped this week. You've been working with writer Leah Williams on the Power Girl backups into this special for the past six-ish months. Yeah. Somewhere around there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, how, did that, how did that come about? How did you get involved in that book? Did DC reach out to you? Did Leah? Uh... Um, it's actually uh, Brittany Osner. Uh, editor at DC that I used to work with uh, most of the time when I worked for DC. She's uh, an amazing editor. I, I love to work with her. And uh, she contacted me telling uh, me that uh, Leah Williams uh, just got uh, an amazing script with a lot of uh, whimsical, fantastic, uh, kind of very psychological and emotional uh, text in the story. And that she she felt that I will be the good fit for the story. So, and indeed, uh, I really, really love what uh, Leah came with, and uh, especially on the first backup story, it's like crazy art, getting very weird, and uh, I was very thrilled about working on this project. Your style is whimsical, and you've done a lot of very dreamy stuff. I remember the work you did on Faith. Yeah. For Valiant, that was a lot of these, these yeah. fantasy sequences. Yeah. So with the Power Girl stuff that's all in mindscapes, it seemed like a very natural fit to what you've done in the past. Um, yeah, 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 you, get, you totally got it. And, um, I think it's because I used to work as an illustrator, and uh, they kind of dig the fact that I, I could express very... Um, Specific, uh, I don't know how to tell that, symbols or iconic images within the pages. So, does, does that make sense? Yeah, yes, okay, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. And is, the book is continuing after this special, correct? Yeah. It's, it's moving forward into its own book? Yeah, uh, I, they didn't offer me to work on the series, but I do think it's because of uh, time schedule. Hopefully it, mm. it is, but uh, they offered me to pop in again uh, in, on some issues within the series, um, so that's it. Yeah. <laughs> that's all I know so, so far. <laughs> and your previous work on DC, well, at least some of it was the bombshells, the, yeah. the four, 1940s, World War II style, revamp, not revamp, no, it's a Uchrony. Alternate universe yeah. type uh, stories with the very female-centric, all the, the, the superheroines as the, the main thrust in that era. Mm-hmm. Did you do a lot of the initial designs? I know they started out as a line of covers. Yeah, uh, it's uh, figurines. Ah, right, statues. Yeah. They were statues. It's uh, statues done, uh, and uh, covers uh, designed by Aunt Lucia. So I didn't have to 
work on the design, they were already there uh, and they were already amazing actually, so that was good. <laughs> You also have a story coming up from Marvel, correct? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, in the Marvel Age 1000 yeah, exactly. one shot. What, what's that story? So it's a story written by Rainbow Rowan. She's amazing. Yes. She did the Chi-Elk series that is blowing. So, uh, and it's a 14-page story, retro kind of style, about the... the beginning of the love interest between Jean and Scott. So it's really, it's, I was so happy when uh, Tom Brevard uh, offered me to work on it because it's really like, it's shoujo kind of, do you see what I mean? You know, they, it's all about the face expression and how far the ends are on a balcony and you know, this kind of things and smile and Scott opening up to Jean, which she's feeling very lonely because she was the only female in a bunch of <laughs> boys, <laughs> you know? So that's, that's a lovely story. Were you an X-Men person going in? Um, I, dig, I dig the characters, but I'm not as used as... Uh, um, I used to be on some of the DC characters because I haven't worked that much on them, you know? So, but uh, yeah, I was very, especially Jean, of course, and love story is always uh, moving, you know, uh, uh, stimulating for creators to work on. I, I guess, maybe not all of them, but me, it is. <laughs> for someone whose style is so expressive, who, yeah. who draws such great character interaction, and great, not to say that your action isn't great as well, but when I think of your style, your stuff is really about the the looks on these characters' faces and the yeah. way that they interact. Yeah, thank you so much. And uh, what I love in the stories as well is that I could go crazy on, um, you know, I could go, I could do my stuff on uh, clothes, on, uh, you know, they are, they are in the costume only on two pages. And, uh, and I was like, yeah, the, uh, so they do have like uh, high waistbands and, you know, this kind of thing. And uh, I was very happy to do, to work. And, you know, the hairstyle, I can could go crazy on that too. So I love that. So yeah, I was going to say, is that you like that being able to do the, the, clo the yeah. clothing and the, the character design? Yes, yeah, the, um, the styling and all. I'm, I really love to work on that. Kind of stuff. <laughs> Conventions. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I know. And uh, I, I love to work on psychological, emotionally driven stories. So, do you great. have other projects coming up that you can talk about? We are well aware of the non-announced project yeah. that the artist cannot speak yeah. of yet. I am. I am currently working on a more personal project. Uh, writing, writing stuff that I will illustrate as well. Ooh. So pitching, pitching stuff, um, and uh, yeah, mostly I have covers and things like that. But that's all of that I can talk about. Oh, absolutely, so we completely understand. Yeah. Well, Marguerite, thank you for your time. Thank you for your invitation. Well, we hope you have a great rest of your convention. Yeah, I hope too. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. And we are here on Sunday at Fan Expo Philly with Lewis Southern, 
creator, writer of Midnight Western Theater, along with some other books. How's your uh, Fan Expo going so far? It's going really great, Matt. Uh, this is my first one, uh, and I have to admit, it's going 10 times better than I expected. Uh, I've only done smaller cons uh, and store signings, so this is like my big multimedia con, my, my big debut. And I think <laughs> I think I have a future in this because I've sold out nearly every copy of every book that I brought. Uh, I brought at least 30 issues of each. I have, let me count, like 10. And we're just down to, I think, nine. So that seems like a pretty good showing. I uh, think so. I, I'd, be, I'd be happy to see that number if I were you. I... Uh, I, and I gotta admit, Midnight Western Theater, I don't think is the greatest household name in the world, but I, I think I've definitely made an impression on people, so it works. Where are you traveling from? Uh, the UK, actually. Oh, wow. Well, I used to be from New Jersey, which has probably led your audience to gasp in shock, but uh, <laughs> I, I, my partner, uh, she's from the UK, so I, uh, I now live over there with, with them, so... Whereabouts in Jersey? Just curious. Uh, Rockaway, New Jersey, right on the outskirts of Morristown. Yeah, uh, you're from. We're from the same area. <laughs> uh, I I went to Drew University okay. in Madison. I grew up in the Newark area. So did my podcasting partner, who's not here today. Okay. So yeah, we are we are well familiar with that area. I I'm learning that uh, coincidence just becomes life after a while. It absolutely does i i found out recently that my boss at the publisher i thought he lived in florida he lives in the next town over from me and i had no idea the world just becomes smaller and smaller with each passing day gotta love it uh so you mentioned the title already but you're the writer and creator on midnight western theater which yes. is being published through scout yes um can you give us the elevator pitch on the book Ooh, that's uh yeah i can try uh, it is a Weird West anthology series, or at least volume one is, uh, featuring uh, the adventurer protagonist, the woman in black, a.k.a. Hortensia Thomas, and her whiny man sidekick, Alexander Wortham, the reluctant vampire. Each issue is a bottle episode or a standalone story where they write a wrong, either supernatural, human, or anywhere in between. Uh, and while they are standalone, you read all five, there is a whole story. But volume two, we can mention that. Because July 12th, uh, issue one of the sequel is coming out, and that book is radically different in every way. Uh, it's a connecting story arc, different art style. We've got beautiful Art Nouveau covers by Julianne Griep. We've got Butch Mappa on art, who's doing uh, a beautiful, I think, cover of David Hahn's amazing art from the first one, but, you know, putting his own spin on it. And Sean Peacock, a brand new colorist on the scene, doing his best work, and my ever-faithful letterer, Buddy Bodwin, back again, the workhorse he is, to stick by me through every project. How did the book come to Scout? Okay, well, I was I was working on a different book with Action Lab Entertainment, uh, which is a big red flag for some people who are in the know. Wasn't going to say it, but that immediately, yes. Yeah, uh, it was originally going to come out in 2020, and I don't know where everyone else, what they were doing at the time. But for me, uh, I went, I, things got a little complicated. And Action Lab pretty much went under. And that book went under. And I was scouring through my emails. 
And I did have a response sitting from Scout from ages ago saying that they were interested in the book. So I just lost my job and there was the job just sat there waiting for me. I'm like, yes, I'll take it, please. I'd love to do it. And since then, uh, perfect timing. We're working with Scout ever since. And through ups and downs, it's a pretty good working relationship and I'm enjoying what I'm doing over there with them. How did you and David Hahn connect? Well, that connects to the Action Lab book. Uh, I was going, I needed a guest artist for one of the issues and I discovered Helioscope, which is the artist collective running out of Portland with Carl Kiesel and Steve Lieber and David Hahn. Uh, so I went through their catalog of artists and I love David Hahn's art style so much that I asked him to be the guest artist. He said, I love drawing goth women. There's this goth character you have in this superhero book. I'll do it. So when I got to drawing goth cowboy or making goth cowboys, I was like, I know who to call. So it was a, it took 15 minutes for him to basically say yes. I personally love the weird Western as a genre. That, that blend, the sort of juxtaposition of this earthy, you know, sort of quote unquote real thing of cowboys and then the high supernatural. Mm -hmm. What is it about the genre that speaks to you? Ooh, that's a very good question. Uh, I kind of, well, with my specific book, like I said in sort of the elevator pitch, I kind of like the range of what you can have the characters be doing. Because there's this fantastical element that you can explore, but with the Western setting, it's more fun to almost see how crazy outlandish things interact with grounded things. Um, I think that leads to some good visuals. I think that leads to some interesting storytelling. And it's just a giant springboard for possibility. Uh, the, like I said, the original book was standalone adventures. And so each one I got to explore a brand new idea. And with the sequel, I basically took the concept and I blew it up in every possible way. And I can really only do that because there's just so much potential with this specific genre. So it's, it's, a, it's a creative's dream in terms of that. That's the beauty of comics, that there you can stretch without having to worry about budget. Don't say that. An, every artist is going gonna, is gonna to die after they heard that. Yeah, you always see the writer go, it's like, I love comics because I could say there are a hundred spaceships go to Earth and each spaceship looks completely different. Uh, and then on every artist just loses five years off their life. But I think, uh, I think the responsibility of any good writer is yes, there is a bit of an unlimited budget, but uh, don't don't kill your artists. You know, work within the confines of uh, ethics. <laughs> <laughs> you described your protagonist's sidekick and associate as a reluctant vampire. Yes, and and is a whiny boy, which yes. I, I personally like that description because it is very apt for the character. Why? What? Where did that come from versus, you know, just sitting back and being like, no, I want to write this, you know, cool vampire. Like, no, I want to write a guy who's like, I'm so sick of this. Well, I, I love interesting character dynamics uh, in the media I, I consume. Uh, I, I just love a good duo or a group or whatever. You got to see what kind of things you can get out of that. And with this specific uh, duo of Hortensia and Alexander, I love the idea from the from the dawn of me coming up with this that Hortensia is a for all int intents and purposes like a normal 
human being. She doesn't have any fantastical skills other than, you know, being a trained cowboy. But Alexander is a vampire. He, he's a bloodthirsty killing machine. But he is, like, he's not the one you worry about. Like, Hortensia is the, le the less powerful one, but you're more scared of her than you are of him. And I think that's just kind of very fun. That the guy you should be worried about, like, you wouldn't bat an eye at him. Like, so that's just, that's just good, good fun right there. And it leads to excellent comedy. Like, one of my favorite uses of that, I believe it's an issue two, where she just kind of uses him as a human shield. Because it's like, you're not going to die, so I could just use, I'll literally use you as a prop. So, and he won't, he won't like it, but he'll accept it, which is basically their whole dynamic. So you said that Volume 2 is going to have a different art, a different uh, artist. Yes. How did you connect with them? Uh, well, that one was a lot more simple. I just put out a, a casting call and uh, I had artists submit their portfolio. I do that frequently when I'm starting a new project. I did speak to David Hahn first, but he unfortunately had to say no due to scheduling conflicts with Impossible Jones with Carl Kiesel, another great book. Phenomenal book. Um, so I met Butch just online. He reached out to me, he submitted his portfolio, and I'm glad he did because him and I have become fast friends and I love working with him. He's doing excellent work at Archie right now. He is part of the creative team launching their first uh, trans character. I believe it's Danny Taylor is the name. Danny, I can't remember the last name, I Danny don't, definitely. Don't get me wrong, but I'm, I'm very happy for him for that and I'm very glad that we could work on this together as well. He's a very talented guy. Now you have you have a couple other projects coming up this year. I do. Um, what can you tell us on those? Okay. Well, I'm very ecstatic to reveal that I am a member of the Sumerian Comics relaunch. Uh, they were formerly Behemoth Comics. Now they've become Sumerian ever since their purchase of, by Sumerian Records. And while they have a, a collection of licensed titles, they're doing continuations of. I believe American Psycho and Basic Instinct. I am one of the main creators launching the uh, original products or projects. So um, I am spearheading the Blackout Bombshell, which is a three-issue, oversized NAR book. I'll give you the elevator pitch for that. It's the late 1960s. An alcoholic detective named Jack, Jack Atlas has been hired to solve a case. Unfortunately, he was hired to solve a case during a drunken blackout. So he doesn't remember who hired him. He doesn't know what the case is. All he knows is that he's in trouble. And I have another Cracker Jack uh, creative team working with me on that. I got artist Dean Cotts. I got colorist Patrick Furmeyer. Letterer Buddy Bodoin, again. As long as I'm working, he's going to be working with me. Uh, artist Heather Vaughn. And I'm very happy to be working with him, uh, Bill St. Kevins. So, Ooh, that's a... That's a big one. That's a get. I, I was very happy. I just sent him an email one day, and he's like, I don't know you, but sure. <laughs> so. I love that. As a, as a you're, you're out there, and you're just like, yeah, why not? Well, I, I, my advice, I was interviewed by the Philadelphia Youth Center, of all places, and they asked me, what's the number one advice you would give to, like, up, upcoming creators or people wanting to kickstart their career? And I said... You know what? This may sound odd, but send an email because, like, you could think nobody wants to work with you, but then the 
strangest and most fantastic people will sometimes say yes. And, you know, better to take the shot than not. That's crazy. So, as we wrap up, how can people follow you online, find out about all these books as they come out? Uh, well, it's real simple. I'm at lewissouthard.com. Uh, on Instagram, I'm at lewissouthard. And I, on Twitter, I'm Lewis J. Southerd because some evil person out there has Lewis Southerd and they're not giving it up. Well, Lewis, thank you for your time. Thank you, Matt. And it is now Sunday morning at Fan Expo Philly, and we are here with writer and publisher Fabrice Sapolsky. Fabrice, how are how is your con been so far? Hi. First, thanks for having me. Then, let me correct you for a second. I'm not just a writer and publisher. I'm also an artist, and I'm also a designer, and I'm also <laughs> anything you can do in between. I collect skills like candies. So, yeah. Duly noted for the future. Absolutely. No, as far as Fan Expo goes, well, I have to say I am I am happy because I haven't been I haven't been in Philly at a con since the days of Wizard World in 2017. So it's been a while. And I have to say, I mean, I've I've been working with Fan Expo for some time now on other cons, and it's the first time that I come back at Fan Expo Philly. Uh, but it's it, it's a it's a well run machine and uh, people are nice. I really enjoyed the city, so yeah, I'm happy to be here. Great. Uh, it is first thing Sunday, uh, and you are here and you have energy and you're ready to go. What's your morning regimen to be ready for a con first thing on the third day? So there's something on my banner. If you look at my well, I know that we're audio and people can't see that, but it says something here. Creative Hustler for Hire at Fair Square Comics. So Fair Square Comics is my publishing company, but I am a creative hustler, and I've had that state of mind since forever. Because look, when you come from nothing, you don't have any connections, and you build yourself up, and I've been in this business for 25 years, you have to keep that same mentality, because if you don't do anything, no one will come pick you up, no one will do anything for you, and no one cares. That is an ethos. That is a, a mindset and good on you. Yes. Uh, so before we get into all the stuff you're currently doing, mm -hmm. um, you co-created Spider-Man Noir. Oh, yeah. And that Spider-Man Noir question. I was <laughs> dreading it. Oh, no, this is real. Just this is a simple question. Have you gotten to see across the Spider-Verse yet? No. Okay. Wasn't sure. Figured. Convention. But going to ask. Well, if, again, if you look at my table, you won't see any Spider-Man thing in there. That says a lot about my relationship with the owners of Spider-Man, um, and let's let's put it this way: Spider-Man Noir. I am extremely proud of the work that I did with David Hine and Carmine Di John Domenico and Marco Jurjevic uh, on that series. Uh, and tips my hat tips off to uh, Warren Simmons and Alejandro Arbona, who were my editors back then. But these days are gone. It was 16 years ago when the first issue was published in 2008. So when people keep bringing Spider-Man, I, I tell them, look, I'm glad that you like my first hit, but I'm going to play other things during my set. And Spider-Man Noir is 200 pages of my life. My, create, my five creator-owned combined are 780 pages of my life and count. So 
I love Spider-Man. I, I respect Marvel and Spider-Man. They gave me my first head. They gave me my first chance. But I moved on, and I created so much great stuff since then. Which we are about to get into for the majority of the interview. Yes. Because you're, uh, you mentioned it a moment ago, um, but your booth here, as well as spotlighting just your work, spotlights Fair Square Comics, exactly. which is the publisher that you're founder and CEO of. Yes. What makes and I'm running with my partner. Yes. What makes Fair Square stand out in a crowd of comic book companies and publishers? Many things. Um, the first thing is that because my partner is African American and I'm a uh, an immigrant and a multi ethnic Jewish person, um, we are the only immigrant and minority owned comic book publisher in America. And Everyone who says like, no, that's not true. Well, bring me proof and I'll stand down. Uh, but that's the truth, unfortunately, because look, what kind of immigrant is creating and, and a minority immigrant like me is creating a combo company these days? Not much, not many. Um, so I did that and we created Fair Square Comics in 2019 and we started really being serious about publishing in 2021. Time to figure it out. There was COVID. It was a little complicated, as everyone knows. Everybody remembers COVID. Um, but so that first thing makes us stand out. We are promoting and curating our content and our books with that background in mind. So most 99% of the creators that we have here and we're publishing are immigrants and minorities. So that's one. The second thing is creators' rights. I, as you mentioned before, I worked at Marvel. I also worked at with Image. I worked with Dynamite. I was a senior editor at Humanoids and I was an editor at Heavy Metal. And I worked with multiple companies in France also. I've been there. It's not my first rodeo. Um, and I realized that creators, comic book creators are always at the bottom of the food chain. We're always pays, paid last and paid the least. So someone had to say, Look, I'm a creator. I'm a creator first and a publisher second. So when I'm publishing for myself, I try not to put myself at the bottom of the food chain. And I'm doing the same thing for my fellow creators. So we designed the system for like a better understanding. It's a color-coded system. So if you look at the covers of Fair Square Comics, graphic novels and comics, you will see different colors and they have a meaning. Like if you see a green color, that means that these are IPs that we control. If you see purple, the logo in purple, it's our creator-owned, full creator-owned, we're acting as a publishing partner. If you see blue, we are acting as a um, an importer. Like, we're licensing content from third-party publishers from all around the world, and we're bringing it to the States. That's the immigrant mentality. Um, and if you see gold, it's it's the, the books that we're co-publishing with our Argentinian partner, Alien Books. And there will be another color coming in the future but right now we have these four colors and we try to make it work and we're publishing books in every color all the time so the creator the creator's right is fair contract when you call your company fair square you have to be just that fair and square so the creator's contract the full control to creators the fair distribution of royalties and money um and and uh, absolute full transparency on everything how do you balance your own creative pursuits your writing your art etc with also co-running a company i mean you said 
you, to yourself, you are a creator first before yes. a publisher. Yeah. But both of these are time-consuming commitments. Yes. There's a lot of things that people don't understand about being a publisher or an editor. There's a lot of work. There's a lot of heavy lifting done in the background and the shadows, and that's fine. It has to be that way. That's one of the things I love about being an editor is you're, you're the man behind the band. And, um, and I love being the man behind the band because whatever product comes out of this brain trust is going to be better for everybody. And my name, it doesn't even have to be there. Like I am proud, even if I'm not mentioned in the book. And I love that role. I love that role because it makes the creators happy and it makes the book better. But when I'm a creator, I am front and center. Uh, and I try to balance it the best possible way I can. I use art and writing and creating in, in general as a therapy. And I start by that in the morning. Like I wake up very early, like 5, 5.30. And I start and I work until my eyes uh, can't handle it anymore at night. Um, so it's, it's these are long days, 15, 16 hours, seven days a week, and it never stops. And I'm doing a lot of conventions, 26 this year. Um, but at the end of the day, this is, this is what makes me run, you know? I love comics and graphic novels. I was bitten by a radioactive comic when I was a kid, and I never recovered from that. Um, and, and I guess, you know, that this is the way I, I chose to run my life, you know? My kids are, are grown-ups. They're all adults now. They, they don't really read comics, and they don't really understand why I keep working in this field. But I, again, it, it, is, it is my heart and soul and probably my blood, sweat, and tears are in comics. So I dedicate every piece of energy that I have, every portion, every bar, um, to growing the company, but also growing my career. And I try to, right now, I'm trying to do two creator-owned books a year, which is already considerable. Hmm. But, and that's how I, I released five creator-owned in the last five years. Your newest Fair Square book, spotlighted right here at the table, is the last Jewish daughter of Kaifeng. Yes. What can you tell our audience about the book? So it's a spinoff from my very popular graphic novel, Intertwined, which uh, I started in, uh, in 2016. Um, and he's now a collected um, trade um, on our table. And it's still the second best-selling graphic novel of the company after Noir's The New Black, which was the book that started the publishing venture in 2020. Um, and Intertwine is fascinating to me. First, it's the first book that I wrote when I came to live in the United States from my home country. Um, and I was just off a trip to China where it was a business trip. And at the time, the, the people who invited me, they wanted me to create comics for them because they wanted to become the next Marvel. They had the illusions of grandeur, so they wanted to become the next Marvel. And when I presented them with a budget that was a million dollar budget, because they wanted like five ongoing series and they wanted like creative teams, you have to pay these people. So I said like, look, it's gonna be a million dollars. They looked at me at the end of this trip and they said like, we're never gonna give that kind of money to a non-Chinese person. And I'm like, okay, well then I'll keep my ideas and I'll do something with it. And on the plane back, I wrote treatment for Intertwine which is a which is a hero story from the perspective of an immigrant and there's kung fu 
It's a murder mystery. I call it Kung Fu Noir. Um, and, and it also allowed me to use a lot of the ideas that I had for Spider-Man Noir that were never used because Marvel was not interested in doing an ongoing series with us. So, which I respect. Um, and it gave me an opportunity to create my own. So that's what Intertwine is all about. And in Intertwine, you have a character, her name is Leah Aitian, um, who's the, the last of her kind. She's the last Jewish daughter of Kaifeng. And Kaifeng was the place in China where the Jewish community settled. They were coming from, from uh, the uh, India, Persia, and like in the 2000, in the 1000, sorry. Um, and uh, they moved there, they settled, they, they got accustomed to the locals and something incredible happened there. Uh, the community went ex almost extinct. In reality, it's not fiction there. Uh, because like the Chinese were treating them so well, they accultured, assimilated, if you want. And uh, it was not uh, something. So I, sa I said to myself, and I've been having this idea of doing a character like that for 30 years. Um, what would happen if the last Jewish daughter, and in Judaism, if you know your Judaism, um, the religion is going through the mothers. So if you're the last Jewish daughter, you're important. You're more important than any man. Uh, and I love my, my strong female characters, heroes. Um, so I was like, what happened if she had to flee? She, she had to leave because something like a forced marriage with a Gentile was like in her future. And that's, that was the starting point of her story. And when we meet her in Intertwine, she's posing as a man. She went full Yentl on this, if you want. It's like an Asian Yentl. Um, and I was like, I always wanted to write the backstory, even when I was doing Intertwine. So I put her in a situation at the end of the original graphic novel where you can tell that something's going to happen. And we, this is where we pick up at the beginning of the second book. And it's basically a coming-of-age story from her point of view. That's, that's awesome. Now, really curious. Uh, so you mentioned Noir is the New Black, which yes. is your bestseller, which yes. was a Kickstarter. Yes. And you've done other Kickstarters. Nine. Fair yep. Do you have a, a Kickstarter audience, like Kickstarter super fans who back all your Kickstarters? Is that a, a particular audience that you've curated? Because I know there are some creators who do. Yes. All they do is they run their Kickstarters and they base their, their whole model off of that. Yeah. And I know, like, for example, my friend Pat Chan. He's a big example. He's a big example. Cat Calamia, yep. which I love and I respect a lot. Yep. Also, Russell Nohelty. There are a bunch of, of those friends who I've been extremely successful with a cycle of Kickstarter. And they're doing a Kickstarter every... Lori Foster. Shout out to Lori. Um, they're doing a Kickstarter like every month. Yep. I have a love-hate relationship with Kickstarter. I acknowledge the fact that this is a wonderful tool. But I also, I'm very pragmatic. Um, Kickstarter's interest is to get more uh, traffic, is to get more people signing up. They're not really interested in the product themselves. They just want more data. Um, so if you take that into consideration, you, you have to, it's very related what Kickstarter brings you. Because at the end of the day, until you bring, you, you build a very faithful audience on Kickstarter, this is extremely volatile of an audience. And I think the mistake that I made is that I launched too many projects that were so different from each other. 
if you look at what Cat has done or what Cat has done, they're staying in one lane and they're exploring all the spectrum of the lane they chose, which is smarter than what I did. I went with Boys the New Black, which is an all African American book, noir book. Then I went to a science fiction fantasy LGBTQ book, which failed. And then I went to Lady Bird, which made it, but with a very small goal. And then I went to another big book. I went to Mutiny, the magazine, which was a huge success also because of the nature of its cover artist. And it drew this audience, the collectible audience. But then afterwards, it was it was very complicated for me to, to, to stay in that space. So I, I asked Kickstarter and I said, like, what about me opening a different account for the different genres that I want to tackle? And they said, no, 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 you're going to be flagged. Okay, so how do I get out of this? How do I get out of this? Because the books that we are releasing, I believe they deserve all deserve a chance because we bet on quality. But if we are going to suffer from being put in a box, that's exactly opposite of what Fair Square Comics is. And if you look at our lineup, you'll see books for everyone. You'll see books that are that range from middle grade books with fantasy to uh, LGBTQ stories to Jewish stories to African American stories. We're trying and and they reach different audience. Yes, there's an overlapping, fortunately, and people can love everything. And I love that when someone comes and say, "Okay, I'm going to take this, 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 this," and they come up with a hundred dollars worth of 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 stuff. But the reality is that on the internet, the audience is a little more segmented and it's different than at a comic book show. So I'm still figuring it out. I haven't closed the door, but let's say that my priority is not that. And we're also distributed through Diamond right now. So we have a worldwide distribution. Um, so it's, we're, I guess we're still figuring it out. There are, there are advantages to crowdfunding, but it's also a huge burden. Uh, because I'm doing everything myself, like running the campaign, doing the fulfillment. I'm not outsourcing anything. Everything is done in-house. People don't realize that when they order on the web store, I'm shipping everything myself and packing everything myself at five in the morning to make it happen, you know? Um, but that's the way it is. That's the life I chose. Do you have upcoming Fair Square projects that you're you're ready to talk about? Oh, I'm ready to talk about everything. Um, there are a few books that are coming up that are extremely important to us. Um, so, of course, you mentioned Intertwined, The Last Jewish Daughter of Taifeng, which is released worldwide on June 14th. Um, then on June 21st, we have a Howard Chaikin book, Sunshine Patriots, that comes through Alien Books, I mentioned before. Um, and then two weeks later, there's a book. Um, there are two books. There's a single issue. Uh, from another team of Argentinian uh, folks called um, Immortal Ascension. And then we have one of our big books of the year. It's a book called A Boy Named Rose. And it's a 225-page graphic novel about gender fluidity. Um, and, uh, and it's a book that I fell in love with the minute I saw it. The artists, uh, artist and writer, they have, I think, 130,000 people following them on uh on instagram so they are huge and uh and it's such an honor to publish a book like this because it will open a lot of people's minds it's not an activist book it's a book that is emotional 
and it was made out of love. So, I mean, people say love is love. Yes, love is love in that book, A Boy Named Rose from Gail Guinier, and, uh, and it comes out uh, July 5th. Um, then after that, we have a couple of books. We have uh, the, the collected edition of our very popular The Ontopia Legend series that came from the, a team of Indonesian creators led by Brian Valenza and a very smart um, Latinx writer. His name is Henry Barajas. Um, and we have this book. It will be over 200 pages, so it's a, another thick book. Um, and it will be released late July. And then after that, we're going to go with uh, a, a book that, I, again, another book that I fell in love with when I saw it. It's called Not a New York Love Story. And it's our main focus of the fall. Uh, it's a book that is a very, very short book. It's 100 pages. But it tells, I would I would describe it as um, the sixth sense in a romance setting. So it's a romantic version of the sixth sense. Awesome. Uh, so as we wrap up, where can people find you and Fair Square online to see when all of these books are coming out? So first, we are touring extensively. So people can catch up us uh, everywhere on, uh, I would say on the planet, but that's not true, in America, in the United States. Um, we're doing Fan Expo Dallas, Fan Expo Boston. We're going to be at Heroes Con. We're going to be in Denver. We're going to be in uh, Long Island, New York. We're going to be in Omaha, Kentucky. Um, uh, and, uh, and of course, towards the end of the year, we have other dates that will be announced, but, uh, yeah, and it's, we're trying to do as many shows as we can, because I, I always say this comics are a sensory experience. You can look at all the pages you want online, but once you touch the books, it's you're, you're involved, you, you have an, a relationship with them. And I want people to have not just a relationship with me or or my partner, Crystal, that I want people to have a relationship with the stories, to see it with their eyes, to feel it with their hands. It's an important part of what we do. That's why we don't do digital comics, because we want people to experience the quality of the books and the fact that we are putting a lot of extra care in this premium printing that we're using. It's, it's costly. That's why our books are a little more expensive than competition, but we're trying to give back all the love that we got. And we're trying to give it back. So there's that. The convention circuit um and of course people can find us uh online we have a store that is a web store that is fairsquarecomics.com shop and uh, we have an um, online presence through social media instagram at fairsquarecomics twitter at fairsquarecmx uh and facebook at fairsquarecomics also so people can follow us on any um, tiktok we're also on tiktok at fairsquarecomics so people can follow us on all the platforms we're easy to find uh, please support. We're a very small company with a huge heart. And, and again, as I said, there's not another company like ours. Well, Fabrice, thank you for your thank time. You and hope the rest of your con is thank great. You. Thank you very much. So we are here on Sunday at Fan Expo Philly with Flash and Green Lantern and all sorts of other thing writers. <laughs> Jeremy Adam. Jeremy. Hello. Welcome. Hey, thank Welcome you. back. Yes, yes. Uh, how has your con been so far? It's been amazing, incredibly humbling. People have been very, very kind. So that's that's amazing. And I've eaten way too much food. <laughs> Welcome to Philly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, speaking of, uh, you shot 
uh, video for your Instagram of you yeah. uh, running up the rocky steps. Uh, what other Philly uh, tourism stereotypes have you fulfilled this I, weekend? So I had three quests. It was uh, go see Liberty Bell, run up the rocky steps, and eat uh, way too many cheesesteaks, which I've done all three. Uh, but I also did a tour at Independence Hall, which was really great, and the Congressional Hall, whatever. And uh, man, it's been great. I, I, I hit all the main marks, I feel like. Yeah, absolutely. Have you gone over right around here at the convention center is uh, the Reading Terminal oh, Market. Oh, yeah. Okay. That's the best crepe of my life. Oh, yeah. I just had this bagel egg thing today. I've been eating there way too much. Oh, yeah. The Herschel's Deli in there yes. has the <laughs> best corned beef sandwich I have had outside of New York City. I, it's weird. I had a friend in L.A. who told me the best Mexican food he'd ever had was in Philly. I was like, what are you talking about? You know, because I'm from Arizona, live in LA. We have great Mexican food. But he's like, yeah, you got to go to tequilas. I'm like, okay. You know, I haven't gone yet, but, you know, I'll have to come back again. I only have so many hours. Come back next time. We'll show you around. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, local, we will show you yeah, yeah, about. Yeah. Uh, so before we get into the comic stuff, uh, you're in the WGA. Yes. How do you feel things are going right now with the, the strike? Are we I don't making think, any progress? No, I, the AMP. PT, like they haven't even uh, attempted to renegotiate and they're very reasonable demands as you've seen like Netflix wanted to increase their executive pay and the shareholders said no because we're asking for like 1% increase and we're it's more of a you know I hate to say it but everybody says it's an existential threat the idea that like they're not going to make any concessions in AI yet they're not going to make any concessions on uh you know, residuals for streaming services. And these are things that are literally going to help writers continue their craft. Um, I am part of two unions. I'm part of WGA. I'm also part of the Animation Guild. And in the Animation Guild, it is very much a freelance. Uh, you get what you can get. You're in for a couple of minutes. You, you bail out. You do great work. But it's not ideal. Like, if you want to have good stories and you want to have people that can make good television, good movies, then you need to invest in them, and it's a very small fraction of what they're asking. So these are all heavy issues. Yeah, we're yeah, just yeah. talking about it. Do you feel like comic work right now is providing a break from that, getting you you're still able to write, you're still able to? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I've always been very busy when it comes to writing, and um, I started doing comics a couple of years ago, and I mean, strangely, everybody's been very kind to me, so. I've been having a blast just kind of uh, putting, you know, pen to paper for, for comic books. But all I'm saying is that it's not in lieu of WGA writing or in lieu of tag writing. It's just I do all sorts of writing. The week as we're recording sees the release of Flash 800, yep. which is the you wrapping up your run on the character. Yep. How does it feel to, to get to go out on 800? That big uh, listen, I, I wanted to do to eight. I, I at least wanted to do to 800 when I first started. And everybody's like, it's impossible. They'll never let you. Um, so I'm grateful that I got to do that much. Um, I had, I, I mean, months and months ago, probably a year ago, I was like, we got to get Jeff and Josh and Mark to do it. And there was a lot of like, there's no way. Like, we could do it. I know all of them now. I will bug them until it happens, you know. But I didn't have to bug them all. Just asked them, and, and they were all on board. So to be able to be in a book with that, and you know, Cy Spurrier is taking over the book. His uh, 
his little story leading up to what he's going to be doing in September is really intriguing, very sophisticated, what, incredibly well done, uh, you know. So it's it's good to know that Wally and his life will be continuing on, you know. What's your favorite thing you got to do with Wally over the course of your run? That's too hard, but I'll give you a couple. Um, I got to write one with my daughter, which was amazing. Uh, she came up with the villain and so many of the, the characters in, in the book. And that was just like, as a dad, it was it, it was it was also the way that I unlocked my love for Irie in a way. Um, the flipping upside down book with Dr. Fate 776, the intergalactic wrestling one with Omega Bandman was another one. I liked all that stuff. Being able to do One Minute War was really unique because it was like that was my first time and my first attempt at doing my own little event within a book you know so so all of those they're all my babies <laughs> you were last on the show right as your first arc was wrapping up oh were, okay it was the we recorded right before the the big reveal that oh it wasn't really wally right. who Right. Killed everybody, everybody which as a Wally West fan, I say thank you. <laughs> I, I will say no more other than thank you <laughs> well, for, for doing that. One of the, the themes that you've, it feels like you've been exploring a lot, are superheroes and their family and their kids. Yeah. And I mean, you just talk, talked about writing with your daughter, yeah. but we've seen uh, the character who is more or less Animal Girl. Yeah. And at the end of One Minute War, we have that scene between Max and Bart, Bart who yeah. are father and son for every in everything but blood. Yeah. And then the last issue, I don't want to spoil too it's much. It's been out. It's been out. Yeah. But we, you bring back Mr. not just Mr. Terrific's yeah. son, but the the other lost children yeah, yeah, of yeah. the Titans. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And. So, what is it about? Is it being a dad that is is make you you know justice for all these kids? I mean, granted, I mean Ron V had already sort of brought back Leanne over yeah. in Catwoman, but yeah. these poor forgotten children <laughs> is what's it about that making you want to give these characters so, a shot? So most of it, especially with those kids, it's even me bringing back like a young John and Damien. Was at the time I was just looking at the landscape of DC and I was just noticing that. Uh, all the young, like the young Justice kids were grown up now. So I was obviously cultivating with Irene and Jay and Maxine their own little super team. And I, I had been thinking for a long time because Mr. Terrific started becoming a character within the book that I would love to bring his kid back in a very unusual fashion with Granny Goodness and stuff. The other two Titan kids, you know, they're not, they're not necessarily from our universe or our, our dimension, I guess, or our continuity, but they could be, you know, but that's not up to me. So my plans for after 800, I had, I had, I had some significant plans for what I wanted to do. And one of them was to kind of try to do a little bit of a backup or something with the kids as they kind of get the ropes. Now at the same time, I did not know that Jeff was going to bring back like 50 kids in Stargirl lost children. So now there's a, there's a plethora of young superheroes out in the DC universe. And I think that's great because I, I, I love growing up and reading Young Justice. I love when Teen Titans was younger and I, and you know, Power Pack and some of those other characters. But I think there's a stories to tell with those characters 
that could also draw new readers. So I was really thinking about that and, and how much I enjoyed doing writing Irene and Jay and Maxine. And obviously I had written the Super Sons movie. So like I had an affinity for that stuff. And growing up in the movies I watched was always like kid adventure movies. So I just think there's a place for it. I think it would do really well. And on top of the kids, one of the, the absolute hearts of your book was Wally and Linda. Yeah. Who are, with the possible exception of Lois and Clark, the best couple, <laughs> definitely in DC comics, if not comics comics. Uh, I, I agree with you. I mean, listen, so much of it is is based on my wife. I mean, she's 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 a thousand percent more smarter than I am. And she puts up my silliness. <laughs> right there with you. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so even like the annual, my second annual was just a love letter to her in a way. And it was, and yes, I've shifted Linda because when she originally started as a reporter, she's been like a, a scientist doctor, you know, but I was like, I don't want her to go back to being a reporter because I just feel like there's too many paramours that are reporters. I like the idea of her being like a Kathleen Turner, romancing the stone novelist, you know, and it's just really fun to be able to like concentrate on her and show people what Wade and everybody has done before, which is like she's a critical piece of the book. She's a critical character in the DC universe. And sometimes people kind of ignore the women in other heroes' lives, but they're really they're really important. And for Wally especially, if you look at Wally holistically, you're saying, Oh my gosh, Wally might be the most well adjusted character in comic books with like a family, kids, job, everybody else is like you know, single running around or have on and off again. Boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, you know, and we're in this weird age where, like, Williamson, when he was doing Dark Crisis, it was this focus on legacy characters, and and, and I, I was there, like, you know, focusing on the wallet. So, don't know. So, you, I mean, you brought in Mr. Terrific. Yeah. You had the whole Flash family there yeah. for One Minute War. Right. Were there any... I mean, you sort of said you if, if you had ideas for what you would have done past 800. Yeah. Were there other characters you wish you'd gotten to play with over the course of this run to see them interact with Wally? Uh, I wanted more Power Girl, but they were doing Power Girl. So ever since Power Girl showed Jay how to do a power, like a slap with his hands, I was like, I, I, oh, I really love for her to come in uh, a little bit more. Um, there's always other characters that I want to do. Like, I would love to write when... Ted Cord and Booster Gold meet Gold Beetle. I think that'd be hilarious. There are certain. I think one of the things I did on this run was because somebody let me into the toy box, and so I was always having fun bringing characters and playing with them. And it, it was that's that's the joy. I mean, this book is you know you can tell there's just I'm bringing Doctor Fate and I'm bringing this and I'm just trying to play with as many characters as I could. Oh. And Gold Beetle is your your baby. Yes, you. How much? How fun is it developing her from first appearance back during Future State, yeah. and now popping up? And you might have plans yeah, yeah, yeah. moving forward. <laughs> I, I'm not asking for spoilers right, right, because right. I know better. She, she is just—I um, just wanted a Doctor Who character, and um, a character that is weird and strange, but somewhat competent. Even because, and part of the competency is you don't think she is. And she's always just kind of like everything's going to work out. It's great, and 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 that to me is the combination of Booster and Beetle. Booster is incompetent, 
But, you know, if you remember Jeff's, uh, John Frank, uh, or uh, I'm trying to think the other, the guy who did the, the Booster Gold run, uh, it was Jeff and, um, oh, Jeff Katz. Yes. And when they were doing it, it was like, that you found out that Booster was also this incredible superhero that saved continuity a million times. And then you have Ted Cord, who is funny, but he's more of like the straight man to Booster's silly guy. And I'm a huge Ted Cord fan. So anyways, putting Gold Beetle together, uh, and it was really great, because I think originally I was like, I was gonna make him a dude, and Cotton's like, well, what do you think about making a, him a girl? And I was like, oh, that's so much better, because I've got daughters and this will be, this just feels right. And so, we switched courses and she, and then, you know, creating this kind of like future love story with Jay and stuff. Um, I don't know. So she's a character that I hope I can be writing for ever, you know, bringing in when I need her, but I don't want to oversaturate it either. I don't want her to be, I think with new characters, there's a certain amount of like too much, too fast is or bringing too much, too fast is too much period. Same with Omega Bam Man. I had some ideas. Uh, obviously, at the end of my run, I had Omega Bam Man and Gold Beetle on the ship with Mr. Terrific. And I had this whole idea of like that motley crew going off and doing things. So, maybe someday. You don't want it to be Poochie. You remember the episode of The Simpsons? Yes. Where, when Poochie's not on screen, people should be asking, Where's yeah. Poochie? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yep. It's very easy for a writer to develop a new character yeah. and suddenly it's Poochie. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, now, in the meantime, you also just started your run on Green Lantern. Correct. Uh, how has the reception been for issue one? Well, I mean, people have been unbelievably nice. Uh, you know, there's going to be a, there's going to be some setup. I think that's what I'm nervous about. Hoping people will stick around so we can get to the mystery of what what's happened between the end of Jeff Thorne's run and now. Um, I think there's a lot of open questions and dangling threads in the universe. And why is how on earth? Why is how doing all this stuff? But people have been incredibly nice. I'm very grateful. So speaking of, of Hal, with all of the, the Earth-born Green Lanterns, why is Hal the Green Lantern for your story? What is it about him that makes this a Hal Jordan story versus a, a guy story? I, I, I think it's been a long time since we've had a good Hal story. And there's a lot of Hal hate. <laughs> so my job, I feel like my job is to get people to like Hal to get people to love how um i think what's unique about it is like we were talking about the legacy characters there's a big focus on them with titans and nightwing and and wally and whatever but i think that leaves an opening to tell some interesting story with the older characters that aren't necessarily in the spotlight right now like what does it mean to grow up what does it mean to for how who is impetuous and, and was a jet fighter pilot and the world's kind of moved on a little bit from from who he was and he was this cop in space and now he's back home and he's trying to start a relationship again and she's got somebody else and is that even fair like there's a lot of drama that he had there but he's Hal Jordan you know and and part of it is just the way I want to write him in a way that I really enjoy him and that's the task so so is that why we're back on earth because the past Every Green Lantern story since Rebirth has really been Outside. a space story that you had. The pull of Green Lantern in space is massive. Like, I can feel it even in my book. But editorial, when they asked me, do they go, hey, we want to do kind of an Earthbound thing. And I said, great, because a year ago, I had a pitch for Green Lantern in which Earth was quarantined 
And uh, Hal was stuck on Earth because I felt the same thing you're saying now, which is it's been in space. So part of the way that I like to do storytelling is to try to do the thing that hasn't been done for a while or unexpectedly. So we are going to start on Earth. We're going to concentrate on Hal and get people excited about him. And then we'll gradually move out. And that's sort of what I did with Wally was like concentrate on Wally and then we moved to the other family members. So that by the time we got to one minute war, everybody's fully invested in everybody. Uh, that's kind of hopefully the same kind of formula I want to do. Are you and Philip Henley Johnson, who are writing, who's writing the John Stewart backup, are you guys coordinating, or is it sort of separate uh, trails, and you're just making sure you're not stepping on each other's? Toes? He's got his. Well, we're definitely doing that. He's got his own book that is. The idea he has of that is unbelievable. But we've been getting together and talking a lot about where our books can touch and pointing in the same direction of where we hope by the time we're both done with these, they can kind of coincide. So aside from Hal, who's your other favorite Green Lantern? Uh, Guy Gardner, mainly because of Justice League International. <laughs> uh, final question. Okay. Uh, where can people find you online to keep hearing all uh, the work you're doing uh look up space kicker on instagram or twitter and that's me thank you very much jeremy have a great great rest of your con thank you too so we it's still saturday at fan expo philly and we are here with the man the legend artist former editor-in-chief of marvel comics joe Sada. joe how is the con treating you uh, it's treating me great. I'm here with, with some wonderful fans. We're hanging out. We're signing. So, you know, if you hear me uh, get a little distracted, it's because I'm in the middle of it. So we're literally live in the thick of it. The beauty of a con. Love it. Uh, love so it. it's a it's a big weekend for Spider-Man, obviously, yeah. with the new movie. Uh, after being involved with Marvel for as long as you were, you still get excited to see these characters adapted on the big screen? Absolutely. I mean, who, who wouldn't, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's always a thrill, especially coming from where I come from, right, which is, you know, there was a day where none of this was, you know, people would say this was not possible. Uh, and also, there was nothing to see, right? Oh, yeah. So, uh, so it's, it's, always, it's always great to see these characters interpreted in so many different ways. Uh, you know, the current Spider-Man uh, uh, animated movie is just brilliant. So, you know, it, of course it is. You know, it, oh, it, yeah. it's, it's self-evident in a lot of ways. Oh, yeah, I saw it last night. Blew me away. Is it great? Oh, phenomenal. Uh, how, how's your drawing hand after all the time, you know, behind your desk? You, know, you still, you know, put pencil to paper, you know, keep it limber? Every day. I mean, that's the thing, right? So um, even though, even though uh, working as editor-in-chief at Shapiro Officer meant you did not see a lot of stuff on the stand, I always make it a point no matter what, no matter what, what, what my day looks like to draw a little bit and to write a little bit. You know, it's not anything that anybody may ever see or read, but you gotta keep you gotta keep your hand moving. If not, you do lose it. It's like any it's like any muscle, right? Even though it's it's as much a physical muscle as it is a mental muscle as it is a visual muscle, you have to use it in order to keep yourself active and fresh and still drawing well, you know. So I mean after all these years of Marvel, you've recently also started doing some Batman covers again. I have. Uh, How does it feel to be back doing Batman, a character who was there very early in your career? Admittedly, it felt a little naughty. It really did. I, I, felt, I felt like, uh, you know, um, 
but you know, it had nothing to do with Batman. It just had to be. You know, I, I've been married to the same creative life for so long that you know, uh, now I'm sort of out in the world doing other things, and you know, I have some unfinished business with Batman, and, and it had a lot to do with has nothing to do with the character, but it had a lot to do with like previous administrations at DC and, and, and even before my time at Marvel. So it felt great to, to start doing those covers and get to draw that character again on, the, on an official basis and actually on the covers of books, which is kind of cool. One of them that you just did was uh, uh, for the most recent issue as of this recording, uh, which was 135, which was also Batman 900, yeah. where you got to draw various Batman, including the Azrael Batman, yeah. which is a character you designed back yep. in the day. Yep. First time I've drawn that character since back in the day, since that day. Do you? Have, yeah. You said you draw a little, write a little every day. Yeah. Is that? Sorry. Oh. Is that a, a schedule thing? Do you have? You know, okay, ten o'clock is when I do some some art, or is it just sort of as the day you? It's, it's you know, first thing in the morning, I, I start. I just doodle, right? I'll doodle, and sometimes it's for something that's actually going to be in print, or it's just because I know I'm not going to get a chance to draw that day. So uh, it's coffee and a doodle, you know, and and the writing. Uh, hell, just even writing emails, you know, uh, the, as much as I do, is, 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 is great writing exercise, but I try to keep a journal when I can. Um, but most of that stuff happens in the morning. You recently signed a first look deal with Amazon to develop some content. How's that going to the extent that you can talk about it at this moment? Um, you know, what I can talk about is that, you know, those guys are great. You know, the, the folks at Amazon have been wonderful. Um, and you know, right right now is a very trying time in Hollywood for everyone, right? With the writer strike and a lot of uncertainty. But but my relationship with them has been pretty pretty great. You know, it's still thank you. thank you so much. We're still sort of in the uh, in the nascent get to know each other kind of phase. But uh, you know, I'm hoping we do some wonderful stuff together. But it's it's too early to really talk about. You know, um, I mean, the announcements come out. We are not well versed in yeah. the realm of the not ready to announce that. Oh yeah. <laughs> You recently made a short film uh, called Fly. What can you tell us about it? Um, you know, it was, it was it's the world's most expensive home movie. It's just something that I decided that uh, uh, you know it was during COVID, a lot of downtime, uh, and just decided to to make this short movie. This story I had in mind, just a simple story, non superhero, just a story about a about a, a young girl who's trying to get to college. 17 minutes long and you know we just did it with a bunch of friends and you know self-financed it and uh, very few people that actually had ever made a movie before the cast had never been in front of a camera before including my daughter who uh, begrudgingly did it for me <laughs> and uh, and then my buddy was just like hey this is entered the festivals what the hell and you know we just started getting into festivals so that was an unexpected uh, uh, just just you know sort of uh, pleasure of the whole thing but Really, it was just, it was just, I've always, I've just wanted to be behind the camera. I just wanted to tell stories, and I'd had an opportunity to direct a four-minute short for Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., an online short, uh, a while back ago called Slingshot, and that won a Webby Award, so I was like, oh, you know, maybe I should try this again, and um, just did it. So it's just, it's just really, a proof of, really a proof of concept to, to see if I know my way around uh, a director's chair. And everybody will have to be the judge of that, whether I am. <laughs> So for years, your Marvel column was Cup of Joe, your, your answer to Stan's soapbox, where you'd answer fan questions and talk about upcoming work. How fancy are you with your coffee, from a, on a scale of diner sludge to I own my own Nespresso machine? Uh, I do own my own Nespresso machine, but diner sludge is pretty fantastic. 
I mean, I, I will. I will look. I'm not, I'm not one to to slag on any brands or any any, any companies. But I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna give it a, a, a dual compliment and, and, and critique here. So you know, I'm not very picky about my coffee. You know, and it can be McDonald's coffee, awesome. Dunkin' Donuts coffee, awesome. Um, Starbucks coffee, awesome. Um, you know, my favorite donuts on the planet. I don't know what goes Krispy Kreme donuts. You ever have Krispy Kreme donuts? Oh yeah. Okay, so you know, right? This is this these these delicate pieces of deliciousness. Glazed donuts are uh, the most amazing thing on the planet, and yet Krispy Kreme coffee. Dear God, dear God, I'm sorry, Krispy Kreme, but guys, like when I go to Krispy Kreme to get the donuts, I got to make sure I. I it's, it's really like a two-step breakfast: those donuts, and I got to get some more coffee. So, but I'm not. Outside of that, I'm not a. I'm not a coffee snob. No. I know you're you're a New Yorker, but when you've come down here, have you ever tried Wawa? Yes. Have you ever yeah, yeah. looked back yeah, as we were as we have talked about, you know, film, have you ever looked back on your role as a pizza delivery guy in Jane Silent Bob Strikes yeah. Back and thought to yourself, you know, Stan had the right idea. I should be doing more of these cameos. No, no, no. As a matter of fact, you know, I had fans in the past say, Why aren't you doing cameos like Stan? I'm like no, that, that's that's Stan's thing, man. It's uh, no, I, I have no, I have never had a desire to be in front of the camera. Uh, I really enjoy working behind the camera, either directing or producing stuff, and you know, consulting that stuff. So that 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 to me is where the fun is. I, you know, I've got a uh, yeah, it's it's that's not what I want to do. <laughs> but you know, I, I will take credit for uh, Kevin Smith's illustrious career. That that role. Oh yeah. People always say it's that moment that the pizza delivery guy arrived that we saw Kevin Smith in a whole different light. Do you have a favorite personal moment in your years as EIC at Marvel? Is there something you sit back and it's like, this is the thing that if if I'm remembered for one thing as an editor in chief at Marvel, it's this. I mean there's there's two things that I think back on. Um, one moment that I'm I'm incredibly proud of it comes out of is born out of tragedy, um, and that was the Heroes magazine that we did after 9/11. And and you know the reason I'm really proud of that is because it was it was really it was just this coming together of the industry. It didn't matter the creators they didn't care, they didn't care if Marvel, DC, if you like each other, if you don't like each other. Everybody came together to put together that that amazing magazine, and and I'll tell you, it, it really sort of hit home and culminated years, years, many, many years later, when um, you know they had opened up um, the 9/11 Museum, and they, they and then later on the Freedom Tower. Uh, I avoided the museum simply because I wasn't ready to relive that, those times. Right? I mean, it, it lost. Uh, a friend there, and, and, and it caused a lot of havoc for other, other people's families that I, that I know. For everybody in New York, it was pretty horrible. Um, but I did eventually go to visit the museum, and I did it with my family. And you know, we, we walked through it, and, and, I, and I walked a little bit faster because it was just tough. So my family was feeling behind, and I, and I walked out of the exhibit. And as I walked through the glass doors to take you out of the exhibit, there was still one more display case there that and the display case and I, and I had no I, I was not expecting this had no idea 
the display case. Uh, it, it, I, I'm, I'm paraphrasing what it was what it was labeled, but it was it was something akin to this is how New Yorkers dealt with the tragedy, and they were you know they, they were like you know drawing some kids in schools and all these other, and they're smack in the middle of this case was Alex Ross's cover and the Hero magazine. And my family comes out of the exhibit and, and my daughter's like, Dad, are you okay? Because I was bawling like a baby. I, 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 it, was just, it just hit me and I took a photo of it and I sent it to Alex because he had no idea he was there. Um, so that, that moment, you know, that sort of, you know, it sunk in exactly that, you know, whatever, whatever small way possible. We raised money and stuff, but really it was more the, the, the artistic release and hopefully for fans that release. I guess the, the, the other thing that I'm proud of at Marvel is really sort of just the culmination of my time there. I mean, I was, I was, at, I was editor-in-chief for, for 20, you know, uh, 10 years. Um, I think as long as Stan, almost as long as Stan, I don't know. Anyway, it doesn't matter, but uh, grand total at the company. And, uh, you know, I was there for 22 years and, 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 and kind of got to pull my shot and walked away. Love everybody there. Love the characters. Love the company. Love Disney, and no hard feelings or anything. It's just it's time, you know. And so, um, yeah. So it, it, yeah, it, it was just it was just my total time there, you know. And what you know, I was I was part of a team that you would you know I, I looked this up, and you would think it happened more often than not, or I thought it happened more often than not. But I was part of a team that took a company that was originally you know uh, doing incredibly well had fallen into hard times in Chapter 11, and then came back from the dead. Uh, so I was part of a team that was really a part of, you know, that, that created the sort of rags to the story. Uh, and not a lot of people did, you know, can say that they were part of that. Uh, again, it was a team effort, and, you know, look where it is now, right? So that, I, I guess it's really just, it's, it's, it's cumulative, the whole cumulative time there. There are a lot of wonderful things in between, but so I have to put them all in one bag. And as we're wrapping up, a little bit of color. Yeah. Uh, do you ever think about you know the fact that no matter how many home run balls Todd McFarlane buys, how many things that different baseball fans have, your dad helped build Shea Stadium, and my that's just was, so damn cool. My dad was part of the was part of the crew, uh, the construction crew that built Shea Stadium, and, and uh, so so I'll tell your story about this. You want some color? I'm going to tell you a story. So uh, so when I was a kid, you know, my dad would tell me these stories about you know. He was, he was literally painting the seats in the loge level, working his way down to the field level the day before opening day. He's like, and there's a picture, there was a picture of me in the newspaper. And I'm like, so, uh, so I'm thinking, oh, my dad was in the newspaper the day before opening day. And he would often tell the story. We never had the paper, we never had anything. So years later, I'm thinking, I'm like, did, I, did he actually say that? Do you remember? I was a little kid. Was he just BSing me, right? Could be anything. So I'm talking to a buddy of mine, Ethan Sachs, who actually is a professional copywriter, sure. good friend of mine, and he, he Ethan was work, worked at the Daily News for a million years, and and I mentioned him, that's his story to him. He's like, when do you think that would have been? I'm like, he said it was the, the day before opening day. So he called up a buddy of his. He said, you think it was the Daily News? I'm like, could have been the news. He read the news consistently. Could have been the Post. Could have been. So he called up the guy at the warehouse that handles the microfiche, who happens to be a huge Mets fan. This guy looked up the New York Daily News. Anyway, Ethan sends me an email that says, open the PDF. And I open up the PDF. Now, my dad's been long dead at this point. Open up the PDF, and there is a photo 
of my dad, and it says Jose Casada, you know, painting this the loge seats, and, and there he is painting the seats the day before opening day. Uh, and like, so he was telling the truth. I didn't make it up, and and that was that was our legacy there. And the kicker, to, a funny part of that story is opening day. The people in the most expensive seats went home with yellow paint on their back because those were the last seats that got painted and they hadn't dried yet. So, Love it. Yeah. Show this has been a great, great time. Thanks, uh, man. As we go, you got a newsletter, right? You want to give our yeah, listeners? Yeah, uh, I just started a Substack newsletter um, last week, right? Today's Saturday. So this past week. Um, it's called Draw- Joe Casada's Drawing the Line Somewhere. So uh, come on board. It's all free, 100% free. Um, you know, unlike some of these other creators that charge, right? No, it's 100% free. I just, uh, I, I, I'm telling stories. I'm doing tutorials, little gossip, a little, little, uh, little slice of life stuff. Each, each, each installment will be a little bit different. Um, they'll, you know, I'll impart some information on how to break into the industry, whatever, whatever little knowledge I have. Uh, I'll throw it onto onto this uh, onto this newsletter. Um, so if you're if you're interested, you know, and, and I'm also writing it in a way that hopefully, even if you're not into comics, you might get a kick out of it. So, thank you very much, Joe. Thanks, Have a great rest of your con. All right, man. Thanks for your patience. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF, where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcasts, Battle of the Atom, and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, a Batman ranking podcast co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a Pete Wisdom Hot Claw sticker designed by Kevin Newburn. A $3 donation gets you access to our bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom. A $4 donation gets you access to Our Son Pete and the sticker. A $25 donation lets you plug your crowdfunded or creator-owned comic in a 60-second spot. And a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis, Robert Secundus, Liz Large, and Will Nevin from ComicsXF, Carla Pacheco, Mike Sagawa, and Azabal Fangirl, a.k.a. The Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQ Comics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF, assuming Twitter still works. And until next week, remember, somewhere out there, there's a Batman comic where all the characters simply cannot stop saying the word boner. WMQ-A.